Before I begin this morning, I want to tell you how good it feels to be here, to be on this chancel with uh, the Reverend Kate Tucker. We have had many wonderful conversations to be up here with Ben Cooper, to hear this music. And I especially love seeing all of you. And, and, and you in the balcony, 9 o'clock, did not compete with this balcony <laughs> up here. This is, this is wonderful. I, I also want to acknowledge the moment that we're at in the life of this congregation and the work that your search committee, on behalf of you, holding your hopes and dreams and anxieties and wonder and curiosity, they have carried that for the year, and we have arrived at this point. So I want to acknowledge the leadership of Nancy Gashat as chair of the search committee, and Deborah Tallon, and Larry Leverkum, who's over here, and Cindy Marsh, who's back there, and Sarah Smalley's hiding here somewhere, and Andrea Johnson is back there, and Dan, where is Dan? There's Dan Bishop. That's your search committee, who has worked so hard... So it feels really good to be at this place beginning this week and this time with you. And I would be remiss if I did not also thank my wife, Juliana, and I have a four-and-a-half-month-old son, Tucker, who's here. Juliana has uh, picked up the ball, as it were, being in the form of Tucker this week, and really helped me focus (laughs) on on this. And so I owe her big time. (laughs) So wherever Juliana is... Okay. So do you ever have those moments in your life, in the heat of a discussion or a debate, and there's some verbal jousting going on, some back and forth where you feel kind of stuck in the corner and you've just run out of steam? That's me running out of steam. (laughs) And you're searching for that comeback or that zinger that just, boom, nails it, that gives you some breathing room. Well, this is the situation that Jesus finds himself in in many of the gospel stories. He is pushed and peppered by questions from the religious authorities who wonder about his unusual teachings and his unwillingness to follow the laws of his time. In the gospel of Matthew, a lawyer tests him, asking, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Perhaps this question throws Jesus for just a second. But then, like Muhammad Ali in his prime, he floats like a butterfly out of that corner he was stuck in. And then in that Jesus dropping little parable and lessons on your head kind of way, bam, he stings like a gentle bee, saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Bam! Jesus, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, in response to that question, what's the great commandment? He doesn't say, well, actually, there's 613 commandments, and most of them are pretty important, but if I was going to pick one... I'd pick. And he doesn't say, listen, I'm God. Actually, Jesus never declares himself to be God in the 
in the Bible. He doesn't say, I'm God, now shush it with the questions. He simply says, love God, love your neighbor. If you think there's another rule or law more important than these, you've missed the entire point. So I wonder, this is a curiosity I have, I wonder if we might try this answer when people ask us. What do Unitarian Universalists believe? There's certainly a lot we could say, some of it better than others, including historically we believe in the idea of one God, Unitarian, that all are saved or no one's left behind, that's universalism. We could say we believe that we don't have to think alike to love alike. Or we could say we're connected more by shared values than by shared beliefs, all of which are fine answers. But since Unitarian Universalism is, after all, the story over the centuries of the stripping away of the religious creeds and the dogmas that so often cripple and constrain the human spirit, I really think it's worth trying. We believe in loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's a perfectly Unitarian Universalist response. There's no Trinity, there's no Jesus is the only way, and there's no hell. It points to the heart of what a religious life is about and what a community religious life should be about. And in many ways, this idea points to the heart of my ministry. Let me pause here for a moment. I think I've used the word God maybe seven or eight times. I lost track in the late night editing. Does anyone have a different count? Anyone? I, I've actually been in congregations where people really do, and it's, it's awesome. You're like, wow, you've really been listening. That's great. But maybe like some of my atheist friends, and I have, a, I have a, a closet atheist in myself as well, perhaps you're asking, Schroeder, and John and I had this funny exchange earlier this morning before the 9 o'clock, he said, what do you think about me doing some, some, some Beethoven on the, on the piano sometimes, kind of a little, you know, Peanuts, the cartoon, Beethoven, the piano, I was like, Schroeder, I was like, oh, we'll, we'll get to that, not, not this Sunday, <laughs> not this Sunday, John, but we'll get to that. <laughs> So like my atheist friends, maybe, maybe you're asking, Schroeder, what do you mean by God and, you know, by God and by loving God? So let me explain. Because some of you may be saying that loving God and loving your neighbor is not a Unitarian Universalist response. After all, there are plenty of people in our churches, our congregations, who don't believe in God at all. And honestly, I probably don't believe in that God either. If we're talking about the one who created the world in seven days, who sent Jesus to die to atone for humanity's sins, who tests us to make us stronger, who would predestine some to hell, no. No. When I use the word God, it's just a word. It's a pointer. It's a north star in my life that helps orient me in a particular way in the world. It's the North Star that helps me get out of my hamster wheel mind, my monkey mind, and away from my own certainty and my own ego. It helps me let go of the narrow world of Justin. 
And when I let go, I can fully embrace and bow before the incomprehensible mystery that surrounds us, from which we are born, to which we return. Loving God, again in quotes, is, as I understand it, not about a holier-than-thou piety party or about religious fundamentalism. Instead, it is a turning toward the source of our lives. It is giving thanks for this world we did not create and this day, rainy as it might be, that we did not earn, but that is a gift, is ours to live into. As E.E. Cummings says, I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is, yes, I who have died am alive again today. As Thomas Lux writes, and I love his opening, Lord, whoever. Lord, Lordess, Goddess, whoever. Thank you for this air. I'm about to inhale, exhale. Thank you, Lord, coming for to carry me here where I'll gnash it out, Lord, where I'll calm and work. Lord, thank you for the goddamn birds singing. (laughs) Loving God can be, again, in quotes, loving God can be as simple as paying attention, as being silent, those moments in Kate's prayer in Cycle of Life, those moments of silent attention. As Mary Oliver writes in her poem entitled Praying, it doesn't have to be the blue iris, It could be weeds in a vacant lot. It could be a few small stones. Just pay attention. Then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but a doorway. A doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. When I try to live out the commandment, love God, I understand it in terms of having a spiritual practice, a devotional life, something that regularly connects me to the mystery, to the source, to Lord whoever, with all of my heart, mind, and soul, or at least as much of my heart, mind, and soul as I can muster. As many of you know, my wife and I have a a four-and-a-half-month-old son, So sometimes my heart, mind, and soul are a little tired and cranky because I'm not getting any sleep. And I notice some of the parents here with with young ones, and I feel for you because sometimes, man, that baby will sleep for eight, nine, ten hours, and it's great. Our son isn't doing that yet. (laughs) So I'm not getting much sleep, and my wife's not getting much sleep, but I'll tell you what's true is this. When I take five minutes a day for silence, or for reading a poem, or for saying grace a few words before dinner, but being present to the gift, to the food, to my wife, to my family, something in me shifts. I am reoriented toward what matters. Loving God, that idea of loving God, is what I believe opens us to gratitude and a deep, deep current of love. And it asks us to incarnate and be loyal to that love. And it orients us toward the things that matter most. 
That's how I understand God. That's how I understand loving God. It's a way to name the mystery and the love at the heart of things. To say yes to dancing with the holy. The second part of the great commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. We've probably heard this a thousand times, the golden rule. Simple, right? Well, I'm not so sure. Uh, The question that always comes up in this classic parable and story is who exactly is your neighbor? Is it someone who looks like you or walks like you or dresses like you or talks like you? Is it someone who lives next to you across the country in another country? Someone you don't know? And a part of this commandment, aside from the love your neighbor bit, is simply, you know, the commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. So a part of this commandment, aside from the neighbor part, is simply to love yourself. To know that you hold a spark of the divine. That you are enough. That you have the capacity to be whole and holy. That's really another sermon. And if you want to hear that one, there's a, I understand there's a vote happening next Sunday, and uh, I'll preach that one in the fall. That's my promise to you. But back to the question, who exactly is our neighbor and how are we to love them as ourselves? Jesus doesn't come out and answer this question directly. Instead, in his uh, mindful teaching sort of way, he drops this little story. It says, you who fed me when I was hungry and gave me water when I was thirsty and invited me in when I was a stranger and visited me in prison, you will be truly blessed and the kingdom, the kingdom of equals, of, of beloved, will be yours. To those righteous ones or confused ones who respond, Master, when were you hungry and we didn't feed you? When were you in prison and we didn't visit? Jesus can only say, You don't get it. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, however you served one of the least of these, you did it for me. As author Diana Butler Bass notes in her book, A People's History of Christianity, and think Howard Zinn's version of A People's History of the United States. This is the back end of the Christian story. Diana Butler Bass writes, This testimony, the story of Jesus, represents Jesus' notion of hospitality. Hospitality, in his view, is not a relaxing break at a fancy hotel with service and spas and lots of food with the disciples. Rather, it is defined as the practice of welcoming those who Jesus calls the least of these, welcoming them into community. Outsiders are brought in the circle of protection and care as normal social relationships are upended and overturned. Diana Butler Bass continues, To ancient Christians, hospitality was a virtue, part of the love of neighbor and fundamental to their faith. So I have to confess, as I read this book, what really shocked me, and I've, I've studied this stuff, but what, what shocked me, and I didn't understand the depth of the, of the truth of this, is that Unlike every other contested idea in early Christianity, so we're talking 
about the Trinity and whether or not there's a Trinity or it's, it's a, a unitary, you know, unity of God, the, the nature of Christ, all of those contested issues, those are out there. But the one piece that wasn't contested, the unanimous agreement of the early Christian mothers and fathers was that hospitality was the primary Christian virtue. And from what historians can gather, hospitality served as the primary motivator for conversions. Most importantly for us, and what links us to these people of faith so many years ago in these early communities, is, as Diana Butler Bass points out, the idea that hospitality is a practice that kept and that keeps the church from becoming a club, from becoming a members-only society. The love of neighbor didn't stop with hospitality. These early Christian communities also practiced radical generosity with their neighbors. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 32 and 34, and I know I'm quoting a bit of uh, the Bible here. Did anyone bring a Bible and want to follow along? In my... <laughs> what? A Unitarian Universalist didn't bring their Bibles? I don't normally quote this much Bible. But this is a significant point in in Acts chapter 4. No one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they held, they had, they owned and shared in common. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Obviously that practice didn't last. But what did last, what's with us today, what is central to the universalist message of love and hope is this idea of hospitality. The practice of hospitality. And it reveals how those early Christians answered the question of who is my neighbor. For them, like Jesus, their neighbor was anyone who was a stranger or in need or oppressed or suffering or hungry or outside the circle. And they responded with love and compassion and care. For the Buddhists in the pews this morning, this no doubt reminds you of the idea of a bodhisattva an enlightened being, someone motivated to stay here, not to achieve nirvana, to stay here, motivated by love and compassion to help those who are in need, those who suffer. Clearly, our tradition draws from more than the Bible, and I don't normally quote the Bible this much, but that's where our roots are. There is something there. Unitarian Universalism is the story over the centuries, as I've said earlier, of the stripping away of the creeds and the dogmas, those things that constrain and cripple the human spirit. It is the story of getting to the core, to the essence of what matters for living a faithful life, upon which all the other laws and the prophets hang. And as our Unitarian and Universalist forebearers might attest, Nothing trumps love of God and love of neighbor. There is power there. Attempting to follow and live out the great commandment points to what faith is about. As the late W.C. Smith, a scholar of comparative religion at Harvard, says, faith is an orientation of the personality to oneself, to one's neighbor, to the universe. It is a total response, a capacity to live at more than a mundane level, to see, to feel, 
to act in terms of a transcendent dimension. So the commandment to love God and love your neighbor, it's not doctrine, it's not creed, it's bigger than the Bible. It is an invitation into deeper faith. It is an invitation to practice and to promise radical love, devotion, hospitality, and generosity. And the church, us, the people here who come here every week, week after week, this is the place where we practice and promise that together in community. It's what the church is in the world to do. The church is where, with one another, we come into contact with mysteries too marvelous to be understood, where two hands touch and the bond is never broken. The church is where we catch a glimpse of a love greater than anything we've ever imagined and where we incarnate that love and take it out into the world. It's where we reach out to the stranger who is here today and next Sunday and the Sunday after, and we say, welcome, welcome. We're glad you're here. And this church, First Universalist, is where you say Sunday after Sunday, at least the last couple months, a slightly different version of the great commandment. You know it. We said it this morning. Will you say it with me? Will you feel the power of these words? It's the chalice lighting reading we said earlier. Will you say these words with me? Love is the spirit of this church and service is its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. May this be our prayer, our practice, our promise with one another. May it be so. And amen.